You're listening to the Audacious Church Podcast. This message was recorded live at our Manchester campus. We know this is a great investment into your life. So tune in, listen up and stay focused. For any more information, visit us online, audaciouschurch.com. Good morning. How are you doing? Oh, we love this house. I talked to my husband last night. He is so jealous that I am here and he is not. Happy Father's Day. I love men. I love that the men are here in this house. You guys can go ahead and sit down for a moment. I have been so honored to be part of the Luminous Women's Conference. It was magnificent. And I just want you to know that all of the women of this house love all of the men in this house. And so I want to kind of throw up the picture of my family so you can see what my home world looks like. I am the mother of four men. As pastor said, I have been married to John Bevere for 41 years this October. He is the one who led me to the Lord on our very first date. He invited me to a picnic. All I heard was free food. I went to this picnic and got born again filled with the Holy Spirit and healed on my very first date with my husband. So I thought I better marry him. There's my second born son and his beautiful wife, Jessica, Scarlett. And then I've got Alec. He's my third born who married an Australian. And then I have my first born, Addison, Juliana. They're four children. My fourth born, his beautiful wife, Christian, in case he forgets what he is. And then their baby. Can you show me Azariah? There's Azariah. Azariah was conceived in Venice, which is why we finally have an Italian-looking child. I don't know why my other grandchildren look Irish, but this child looks Italian. So I am a dual citizen. I am an Italian citizen and a United States of American citizen. So I'm going to speak to you from a place of being a crazy Sicilian woman. I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story of my father. I don't know how many of you have the kind of background I had, but my grandparents came over as refugees from Sicily. And my father was born into dire poverty. My dad actually looks like Saddam Hussein. I'm going to put a picture of my dad up. If you can put the, there he is. There is my father. See, it, like everybody laughs. Okay, that is, my, that is my father. I was basically afraid of him my entire life. But I want to share with you a little bit of my journey of my father. Because I believe that we have to have a generation of forgiveness and beginning something anew. When John and I met each other, we sat down and we said, we are going to be the beginning of a thousand generations who love God and keep his commandments. We said, we don't care about what's been in the past. It's not about the family you're from. It's about the family you are building. And that is such a redemptive story. We said, we're going to do it different. I remember we sat in a Chinese restaurant 
and we split an order of Mushu chicken and we wrote out, we said, what did your parents do that you liked? There was about two things that I liked. John had sweet parents. John's parents were married for 65 years. My parents were crazy people. They were married, divorced, remarried each other, and then divorced again. My grandmother was a pioneer for women. She actually upgraded her husband. She was married five times. I came from crazy world. So I brought my crazy, and John brought his stable, and we said it isn't about my crazy or your stable. It is about a generation that is holy. We're gonna go forward as a holy generation. And so I remember when John actually introduced me to his mother, uh, his mother was like, we've never had divorce in our family before. I was like, that is not my name. And that is not my legacy. You have no idea, I'm gonna shock you. We're gonna change everything. But when you decide you're going to change everything, God will require some things of you that the former generations never did. I'm gonna quote Desmond Tutu. He said, without forgiveness, there is no future. Without forgiveness, there is no future. What you do not forgive, you will be doomed to repeat or you will live in the captivity too. And so many times we preach the cross as the forgiveness of our sins, but we forget that the cross empowers us to forgive the unforgivable. We forget that the cross empowers us to be a bridge and a gatekeeper for future generations. So I got radically saved. You know, there are people that are nice people and then they become a Christian. I was a, a absolute heathen who became a Christian. I got born again, as I said, the first time I heard the gospel. I said, I, I, wanna, I wanna do this thing. Do we need like candles or like, what do we need to do? And John said, you just need to confess you're a sinner. I'm like, I can do that. And so I got radically saved. I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, every single conference. I remember I started to like serve on the prayer ministry and they were like, you probably, You've been saved for like three weeks. You probably should not be serving. But I found my purpose in the house of God. I don't know about you, but when you spend 21 years squandering your life and then you hear about the love of God and you hear about the truth of his word, you grab a hold of everything and you say, I'm gonna go forward with this. And so I'm, I'm at church. I'm, I'm listening to every single conference speaker. And I remember this minister came through and he said, if your life is not compelling enough for your entire family to get saved, then you have no right to be in the ministry. Well, I'm pretty sure that if you opened up the dictionary that said unsaved Sicilians, my father's picture would have been there. Our family was involved with the Gambino crime family. That's mafia. Okay, I'm Sicilian. So that's just kind of one of those package deals. And I remember I started to think, wait a minute. I've got my brother saved. My mother was saved. But Joe was not saved. Joe Toscano, he was not saved. And so I began to fast and pray for my dad to get saved. I remember we invited my dad to church. He lived in Florida with his mistress. 
We invited my dad to church. I told all of the intercessors that sat near me, you need to pray for my dad. I told the pastor, my heathen dad is coming. Please make him feel the fires of hell. Make sure he gets saved. And so the pastor was like, I will make eye contact with him a number of times during the service. I'm like, thank you. We were sitting on the second row, the pastor's preaching. I remember at the end, he does this altar call and he said, if you're not saved, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes. And my dad, you know, just, he refused. He wouldn't even bow his head. And I remember the guy said, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And my dad was like, I'd go to hell and you can go there too. And I remember I grabbed his hand. I was like, dad, if you die, you're going straight to hell. He was like, grabs my hand, jumps up, cusses in front of like 3,000 people, storms out into the parking lot. We find him smoking a cigarette. He was like, I cannot believe you dragged me into your Christian world. He said, I got baptized when I was a, a child in the Catholic church. I'm like, you had no idea what you were doing. Anyway, so then I thought, all right, bring him to church didn't work. I will give his unlisted phone number and unlisted address to random strangers in Orlando, and I will sick them on my dad. They started knocking on his door, bringing him tracks, telling him he needed to get saved. He was like calling me, take your beep dogs off of me. I am not gonna get saved. I'm gonna go to hell. I was like, why would you even say that? And then I decided, all right, sending strangers isn't working. Bringing him to service isn't working. I'm gonna fast and pray until he gets saved. And so I started Friday night, super strong, dancing to Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Yeah, we had bad music in the 80s. And I just remember like, okay, had a really strong start. And, and then I was like, okay, I gotta stay awake. I'm gonna like pray in tongues and stare at the phone. I was like, God, give him a nightmare, a small accident, strike of lightning, something. Just wake him up and let him know he needs to get saved because he's hindering me from the ministry. And I remember staring at my phone and not actually seeing anything change. And so I have this thing, and I'll share this with you. I opened my Bible. I put it on the edge of the bed. I kneeled on the edge of the bed, and I put my hands up so that if I fell asleep, my face would fall in the Bible. And so I was like, I'm just staying in this posture until my dad gets saved. And I remember, I don't know what time it was at night, but I heard the Holy Spirit say, stop it. You're being ridiculous. I was like, what? I am being spiritual. I am fasting and praying until my dad gets saved. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, I love your father more than you love your father. Give him to me. I'm like, do you know my dad? Like, I feel like you don't know my dad. I remember as a little girl, one time, one time smarting off to my dad and he put me up on the wall. And he was like, what did you say? It's like, I said, nothing. I said, nothing. Scary person. He said, you say you're a woman of faith. You don't even believe me for your family. And he gave me Acts 16, 31. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And I decided that I would be the gatekeeper for our household. And he said, now stop talking to your daddy the way he is. Start talking to him to be the father you want him to be. Stop treating him like he is less than. Honor what you wish he would be. And I began to call my dad. I began to bless my dad. I began to talk to him about the things that were happening in my life. I began to share with him the goodness of God that I was seeing. But you know, my dad had this incredible uh, darkness in his life. I remember one of my sons, um, my son Alec, uh, he knocked his tooth out when he was like 18 months. He knocked his front tooth out. And so I called my dad and, and I told him, I said, oh yeah, Alec knocked his tooth out last week. And I said, I put it in milk. I ran him to the doctors and they put it back in and it's alive. And my dad said, with a little beep, we'll knock it out again. I said, no, he won't. He will not knock it out again. I hung up the phone and I heard my son cry. He had walked into the door frame and knocked his tooth out. I was like, okay, we got to break some curses. We got to make sure, because my dad was like, that's what I did when I was his age and he looks like a paisan. I'm like, oh my gosh. So we continue to just try to bring my dad into our world. We moved from Dallas, Texas to Orlando, Florida. Now my dad was living with his mistress in the same city. And so we would invite him in. He just was kind of confused about our lives. He was always trying to set me up with a bartender when I was married and had children. I was like, dad, I'm actually married and I have children. Then my dad moved a couple hours away. And I remember, you know, when you, your parents are divorced, you you get two Christmases. You get the first Christmas with the first parent and then the second Christmas with the second parent. And it sounds kind of like a bonus, but it really isn't. And I remember we had celebrated Christmas with my mother and now I had packed up four boys and their rollerblades and we are going to drive two and a half hours to go see my dad. My kids are all excited. My dad lives on the beach with his girlfriend. And so they're all excited. They're going to show their grandfather how they rollerblade. Maybe they will go fishing with him. I've really like hyped them up about it. We drive two and a half hours with four boys in a minivan. By the time I got there, I didn't even feel like a Christian. I was like, oh my gosh. I, my boys were like, I, I, you know, they're all going crazy. They're all excited. They're all touching each other. They're all crying. There's just mayhem going on. And we knock on my dad's door and there's no answer. Now he knows we're coming, but there's no answer. So we think, okay, he's probably on the beach. So we walk around, we go to the beach, we look up and down, and there's no dad. I turn around and look at the sliding glass door and he's written a note. He said, sorry, I changed my mind. I don't want to see you. I've made other plans. And I remember John standing behind me and I'm like, oh my gosh. And John was like, Lisa, it's okay. And I said, you know what? This is anything but okay. I said, we would not drive two and a half hours to see your parents and then them hide from us. I said, what is going on? And John was like, no, I, I've got this. Don't worry about this. So the boys are all like running around in the parking lot, putting on their rollerblades. And I'm just like, guys, 
pee in the trees. We're gonna have to get back in the van. They're like, what? I said, I'm sorry. And John was like, you guys, I'm gonna take you to McDonald's. And my kids were all like, yes, because we never go to any kind of fast food. And we're driving home and all of a sudden, I have a meltdown. I begin crying about my dad who did not want to see me or my children. I'm crying and four little boys are in the back seat patting me. They're like, okay, okay. Really what they were saying is make her stop. Makes little boys uncomfortable when moms have a meltdown. And I put my husband on a plane the next morning to Sweden. And I remember coming home and putting three boys outside, nursing my youngest son, putting him down for the nap and laying down on the carpet. And I'm listening to the old school Hillsong song, you're a father to the fatherless. And I begin to weep. I begin to cry. I say, God, I feel fatherless. And I swear, I heard God laugh. I'm like, what? I'm at the pinnacle of my pain and you are laughing? He said, you don't understand, Lisa. You see rejection as a final option. He said, I see the rejection of your father as adoption. He said, when you are completely rejected by your natural father, you are utterly adopted by me. He said, if John needs something, he can pick up the phone and call his dad. He said, you need something, you come straight to me. See, we forget that God is a father first and foremost. He is a father and he cares about his children. And I remember at that moment when God completely adopted me as his daughter, that I had the freedom to love my father without any expectation. Now, my dad was very broken. And so he, he helped himself deal with trauma and pain with alcohol. And after a while, it became dangerous to visit my dad. I remember the last time I visited my dad, he wasn't sure if I was an ex-wife or a girlfriend. And John told me, he said, listen, I'm, I'm not comfortable with you going to your dad unless I am with you. And we're talking around the table about this. And I'm like, yeah, it was really weird. I, you know, it, he just didn't know who I was. He was starting to have dementia or he would be drunk. And we're sitting at the dinner table and my oldest son says to me, mom, the next time you want to go see your dad, I will go with you. And I went, okay, why would you come? He said, because I've always believed that when grandfather sees the man I have grown up to be, he will get saved. I said, yeah, you're the one I'll take. You are the only one I'll take. I said, Addison, that sounds great. So the next time I went to see my dad, I didn't just bring my son. I brought my son, I brought his wife, and I brought, brought my firstborn grandson which would be my father's very first great-grandchild. And I remember we walked into this alcohol-related dementia center where my dad was now living. 
And he sees me and he sees us all coming in. He kind of is trying to figure out, I, I think I know you guys, but I'm not sure how I know you guys. And I knew that would happen, so I brought photos. And so I spread out all these photos on the table and I pointed to the different photos. And my dad picks up this one photo of him when he was probably in his 50s and my son when he was two. And he points to the two-year-old and then he points to Addison. And I said, yep, that's him. He's all grown up right now. And I thought, all right, he's lucid right now. What do I say to this man that is on the threshold of eternity? And I heard, tell him he was a good dad. I thought, that's a lie. I'm not going to lie to somebody who is on the threshold of eternity. He is not a good dad. He was not a good dad. He didn't read the book, How to Be a Good Dad. He didn't make friends with the good dads. I'm not going to tell him he is a good dad. But here's something I've learned. When God says something, he puts it on the table. He does not change his mind about it. You either pick it up or you walk away from it, but he will not lift it off the table. And so I remember I grabbed my dad's hands and I kind of lifted them up so that I had his attention. And I looked at him and I said, dad, you were a good dad. It was like a thousand volts of electricity hit that man. He began to shake. He began to weep. And that 100% Sicilian man formed the only two words he spoke the entire time we were there. He said, thank you. And then my son gets up, stands behind him, puts his hands on my dad's shoulders, and he says, we cancel his debts. He owes us nothing. We pray and translate him from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, that he would be born again, a child of the Most High God. My, my son formed the words that his grandfather could not form. And while that's happening, my daughter-in-law, whose father is an alcoholic, is wailing. It was the most beautiful moment. And you think, well, you, you can't, you can't do that. Actually, you can. John 20, verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. One of the most powerful things that you and I can do is to cancel the debts of others. When you forgive people that you don't believe deserve it, you are acting the most like your heavenly father. So we, I remember we, we put him to bed and I walked into his room and this man I had been terrified now was like a, a, a four-year-old child. He had drawings and coloring on the wall. I kissed him goodbye. I walked out into the waiting room and I said, hey, I, I don't know if you have my updated contact information. I wanna write down everything for you. So I gave them like my number, John's number, our home number, my office number, our direct line. I gave them everything I could think of and I was writing it out. And my dad wanders out, walks right past us. I had that one 
span of time. He totally forgot who we were. A year later, I'm feeling troubled in my spirit. I'm feeling like something is, is not right. And I called my mom and I said, hey, hey, is dad okay? And she was like, that man will outlive all of us out of spite. I was like, mom, you need to forgive him. She's like, no, no, I am not forgiving him. But I just had this moment where I thought something is off. New Year's Eve, everybody's getting ready to come to my house. I'm preparing the food because as an Italian, I am a feeder. I'm preparing the food. and I happen to have like a New Year's Eve thing on and the news correspondent is talking about her father. She's talking about how her dad took her fishing, how her dad taught her different sports, and that she had, that her father had passed that year. And all of a sudden, I start crying. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? I don't know this woman. I don't know her father. Why am I weeping listening to her story? Is this menopause? This is going to be terrible. I hear the Holy Spirit say, no, you're crying because this is the year you'll say goodbye to your father. I walk into John's office and I say, babe, this is what God just told me. Five days later, I'm in Toronto and I feel like this tremor in my spirit. It wakes me up at 3 a.m. I turn on my phone to see if something has happened at home. Nothing. I pray in the spirit. I can't get any release. I read the word. I can't get any release. I listen to worship music. I still feel like I'm carrying something. I pray in the spirit, pray in the spirit. I go and do a bunch of shows. I do a bunch of stand-ups and the whole time the, the tremor is still there, but I've got my phone turned off because I'm in a studio and I am driving to the airport now to fly from Toronto to Denver. I turn on my phone and it blows up with all of these text messages. And I notice that one of them is from my youngest son. So I, I, you know, I play the message and it's like, mom, dad did not call the hotel where I left my retainer. And now I can't get my retainer at the orthodontist. They're saying you gotta pay for another retainer. Then there was another message from my office. Lisa, the ministry does not pay for your children's retainer. We need your credit card for your son's retainer. Then it was the orthodontist office. Mrs. Bevere, we need your credit card for your son's retainer. I'm like, John is in the US. I'm in Canada. Why is no one calling John? They're like, he's golfing. I'm like, really? Okay. So I go through passing on my credit card, getting my son's retainer, doing all that kind of stuff. And then there's one number that I don't recognize. And I thought, well, when I get on the other side of immigration, I'll listen to that message. And I am on the jet bridge and I play the message and I hear someone say, as you know, your father is dying. I was like, what? I didn't, I didn't even go any further. I just called the number back. I was like, what do you mean? As I know, my father is dying. And they said, well, we started a morphine drip on him. And it was exactly the time I woke up trembling. I tried to get back out to see if I could fly to Orlando, but there was no flights from Toronto to Orlando that late in the day. So I decided to fly to Denver. And I said, well, I, I, you know, I didn't know. Can, can she said, you know what? I'm headed to the hospice right now. I'll call you when I'm with him. So while people are putting their bags in the overhead and finding their seat on a plane, I'm saying goodbye to my father. I'm like, dad, 
you were the one who taught me how to swim. Dad, you were the one that took me fishing. Dad, I'm coming tomorrow, but if you can't wait, you can go. I landed three and a half hours later in Denver. I called all of my children and I said, guys, I think I'm gonna have to fly out again tomorrow. I'm really sorry. I called my brother and tell him what's going on. I'm home for 15 minutes and I get a call that my father is gone. And I just remember I, I, I wailed. I just wailed at the loss of the time with my dad. And you know, you just keep preaching the faithfulness of God. You just keep believing that that moment in prayer worked. So that was in January. And then in March, I'm preaching in Jacksonville, Florida. And in my meeting, I keep seeing this one girl with cute little red spiky hair. I'm like, she's adorable. So you all think I can't see you, but I can. And I just thought she's got, she's just, she's just got this edge on her. So I, I hear her when I'm, I see her when I'm preaching. Then I do a breakout on parenting. I see her again. Then I walk down into my hotel lobby and she is standing in the lobby. I'm like, that's three times in one day. I'm going to stop and talk to her. I said, hi, I'm Lisa Veer. She said, I know that. She said, I'm April. We spoke on the phone. I was like, I, I don't know in April. I don't know in April in Jacksonville. She said, oh, not, I'm not from Jacksonville. She said, I drove five hours to tell you about your father. She said, your father was one of our worst patients. He stole a car. I was like, yeah, I feel like I heard that. And she said he would beat up other patients. I said, yeah, I heard that too. And she said he ran away a number of times. I'm like, thank you for telling me all of this right before I preached. No, I didn't say that. And she said, but I want you to know that for the last year of his life, he was an angel. And she said, every time he saw me, he would kiss the back of my hand, which is exactly what my dad did with me when I told him he was a good dad. She said, there was a note in your file that said from his mistress saying, don't tell the family what is going on. She said, and I didn't know that Lisa Toscano Bevere was the daughter of Joseph Toscano. And she said, but I have read every one of your books and there was no way I was going to keep you from saying goodbye to your father. You don't know what's on the other side of your obedience. I never knew when I was writing books, they would go into my future and the person that would take care of my father as a social worker would be the one who would call me to make sure that I got to talk to my father. And yet my father lost his father when he was 10. And I remember everything changed for me when I realized that fathers need fathers. And often broken fathers had broken fathers. I showed you the picture of what my dad looked like later in life. I'm going to show you the picture of what my dad looked like as a little boy. Innocent, hopeful, poor, holes in his clothes. My dad worked hard, but he never was able to escape the pain of his past. So I had to be the one to say that it begins anew and begins 
afresh with me. See, God loves your enemies. I know that we don't believe that, but God loves the people that we now call enemies. And God calls the people that we call enemies his future friends. And I believe that God is asking you and I to be agents of restoration and healing in a time of epidemic offense and division. So I just want to know, who is it that you're afraid to forgive? Who is it that you think, if I forgive this person, I'll get hurt again? Because I don't know who has been in your past, who has wounded you, who has disappointed you. But I do know that God is a father to the fatherless. And God will be to you what people were not. And when we choose to forgive the people that have wounded us, God sets us on a whole new trajectory for our future. When I look at my sons, I'll just be honest with you. They are doing marriage better than John and I did marriage. They are doing parenting better than we did parenting. They're smarter, kinder, wiser, more godly people than we are. And that's not because John and I are so amazing. It is the redemption of God. And we can actually set something into motion that is redemptive. So, J.K. Chesterton, to love means loving the unlovable. To forgive means forgiving the unpardonable. Faith means believing the unbelievable. And hope means hoping when everything seems hopeless. So I don't know what attacks have been in your life before, but you're here now. And our King is asking you and I to forgive just as we were forgiven. Not conditional, but unconditional. See, there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. You and I were forgiven over 2,000 years ago, but we weren't restored to Christ until we repented. And there is this incredible power that you and I have to forgive generations past. And I want to invite you right now to be an agent of healing for the generations that you will touch. Can you stand to your feet right now? Some of you need to write letters. Some of you, it's, it's not your father. Some of you, you need to forgive yourself. Some of you, you look at yourself and you feel like a failure and you say, I, I, you know, I didn't get what I needed as a parent and therefore I'm not parenting well. Do you know that today can be a new beginning? Some of you, it's your mother. Some of you, it's a, a brother. Some of you, it's a sister. Some of it's an abuser. I don't know what your situation is, but I do know it's incredibly powerful to take back your power and say, I choose to forgive. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I want to say, Heavenly Father. Oh, you can get louder than that. Heavenly Father, I need mercy. Therefore, I'm going to sow mercy. I'm going to act and as, as an agent of restoration and generations of redemption and salvation. Father, I forgive 
freely. I cancel their debts. They owe me nothing. I forgive myself. I forgive my enemies. And Father, in the name of Jesus, I cancel their debts. I will not look for repayment. I'm gonna look for you to be the redeemer of everything that was stolen. Make me the beginning of a thousand generations who love you and keep your commandments. I want to be the family of God, not the family of pain. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Love never fails, never fails. I believe that this world is so broken. It is looking for people who will love well. And so we have to be this incredible challenge right now. We have, we have truth and love. And I said this to the women, I said, our, our churches have been known for preaching the truth without love. And so our culture has responded by preaching love without truth. You and I have to merge both truth and love with our lives. And it isn't what we say, it's going to be what we live. That God is going to anoint us to be the merging of truth in love. And we live it in our own life first, and then it works out of our life into the lives of others. It has been an incredible, incredible honor. I'm so honored to have the men here. I want to bless you as men who want to be better fathers, better brothers, better husbands. I love that. I love men. I think men are amazing. And I just want you to know I break all of the curses that culture is putting on the men right now. We bless you as reflections of the glory of God. We bless you as men of God. We bless you as fathers and sons of God. We thank you. We're so thankful for your life and I'm so honored to be with you this morning. God bless. Thank you for listening to this Audacious podcast. For any more information, visit us online, audaciouschurch.com. We'd love for you to join us at one of our campuses, Manchester, Chester, or online every Sunday, 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. 